Mark chapter 10, and we're going to continue a series that we launched last week called The Marriage and Divorce Test. And this is going to be the second part of the series. The third part will take place next week. And um, yeah, we're just going to have an opportunity. So if you weren't with us last week, you have the opportunity. Our church records all the messages. You can uh, listen uh, to that opening message, which is available on our church website. The institution of marriage and what defines marriage has been under attack now more than at any point in history. Advocates for same-sex marriage, for polygamy, cohabitation, even uh, what's commonly referred to as open marriages that give permission for married couples to date during marriages, for all things that are taking place in our culture. And it's led people to make strong attempts to redefine what marriage is. Listen to how Pastor David Platt describes it. I was preaching in Germany one day, and a group of friends asked me, do you want to play football with us this afternoon? I enjoy football, both watching it and playing it. In high school and college, my friends and I used to spend our weekends throwing the ball outside and playing pickup games. Count me in, I told them excitedly. To my surprise, when I got down to the field, I didn't find tall goalposts and a brown ball with pointy ends. Instead, I saw two goals with nets on them and a round black and white ball. That's when I remembered football in Europe and most of the rest of the world is a lot different from my American understanding of football. I call their kind of football soccer. Football, same term, different definitions. But there are other more significant and extremely consequential examples of this. One's definition of human life has huge ramifications for one's view of abortion. How terms like this are defined by a culture determines much about how people not only make decisions, but also live their lives in that culture. So how does one define marriage? This question lies at the heart of a moral revolution in our time and culture. For millennia, civilizations have defined marriage as an exclusive, permanent union of a man and woman. Two decades ago, politicians in our country voted across party lines to defend this definition of marriage in what was called the Defense of Marriage Act. Yet in June of 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down key provisions of that act, paving the way for a complete redefinition of marriage across our culture. And in June of 2015, the Supreme Court exerted its authority again and legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. All of these realities cause us to wonder, is marriage really that important in the first place? And what's the problem with redefining it? Are we really going to say it's wrong for two men or two women to marry each other? Isn't it more wrong, maybe even hateful, to deny two men or women the right to love one another like this? More foundational than these questions is how the gospel applies to marriage. What has the Creator God said about marriage? Have we turned aside from what He has said? Does Christ's death on the cross have anything to do with how we define marriage? And what does it mean for followers of Christ to live in a culture that often defines marriage differently than the Bible does? If we're willing to ask these questions honestly, we need to be ready for surprising answers. More important, we need to be prepared to counter the culture around us in significant ways. End quote. 
I couldn't agree more with David Platt's illustration and assessment. And I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would applaud his perspective. In Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, Jesus speaks about uh, the, the, the culture of the day, speaks to the culture of the day about marriage and divorce, and what was permitted by the religious leaders. We covered the first point last Sunday, and it remains in your outline. I believe they left it in there, right? Is point number one still in there? should be. Jesus exposed their compromised view of marriage and divorce, which we learned permitted men to divorce their wives for virtually any reason at all. Their compromised view, we learned, was connected to their compromised hearts, infected with spiritual heart disease that Jesus featured in verse 5. The takeaway for us was that spiritual heart disease can lead us to get stuck in the mud of divorce and potentially embrace a compromised view of marriage and divorce. Even considered several compromises that have crept into the church and how God's Word provides counsel that refutes such compromises. Now Jesus is going to challenge the hearts of the Pharisees and the divorce-plague culture starting in verse 6. And without question, it will challenge the culture of our day too. As David Platt proposed, what has the Creator God said about marriage? Have we turned aside from what He has said? Does Christ's death on the cross have anything to do with how we define marriage? And what does it mean for followers of Christ to live in a culture that often defines marriage differently than the Bible does? We're willing to ask these questions honestly. We need to be ready for surprising answers. Are you ready for surprising answers? Let's go to the text. Let's begin by reading Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 9. Just going to cut the ends off a little bit just to refresh the context. Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 9 says this. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. Pray with me and let's ask God to bless our study of His Word. Father, we arrive again at the doorstep of Your Word. We ask that You would invite us in and allow us to gain greater understanding of biblical marriage. We pray for clarity, conviction, illumination as your Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds. Marriage truly has been defined and designed by your sovereign plan and purposes so that Christ and the gospel can be magnified. Cement these truths in our hearts so that we can resist the compromises of our surrounding culture that regularly attack what you have ultimately defined as marriage. I pray that you would protect the marriages of our church members and strengthen our convictions according to your word. 
I pray for those struggling currently in their marriages who might be hurting or experiencing some level of brokenness or darkness. This message would bless them with hope. I pray for the single men and women in our church who are preparing for marriage someday in the future that they would be blessed and find encouragement in your divine design. Bless our study as we commit this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you'll notice in the outline I've called the second point of this message the challenging view because God's view of marriage and divorce will challenge nearly everyone at some point. It challenged the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees 2,000 years ago, and as previously noted by David Platt, it will continue to challenge our present-day culture. You'll notice the subpoints under our second point, which will provide the framework for our study as we look at verses 6 through 9. There are four verses and four corresponding aspects of marriage as Jesus challenges our understanding. We're going to look at God's participants in marriage, we're going to look at God's pattern in marriage, we'll look at God's purpose in marriage, and we'll conclude with God's authority in marriage. First, God's participants in marriage. To discern the divine will for marriage, Jesus takes the Pharisees back to the order of creation, quoting Genesis 1.27 here in verse 6. Look again at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. The scribes and Pharisees took great pride in their understanding of the Torah. And so Jesus, taking them back to this elementary or fundamental truth of the creative order, probably caused their eyes to roll a little bit. Spiritual pride. He's taking us all the way back to Genesis. Okay, Jesus. But there's spiritual sclerosis or heart disease that we learned about last week in verse 5. It prevented him from even seeing this very basic truth. Men and women were created equally in God's eyes. A woman is not inferior to a man. Nor is a man superior to a woman. Yes, there are distinctions. Distinctions that God made when it comes to men's and women's roles, but this cannot and must not allow the attitude of women being inferior to men to be cultivated. Yet this is exactly what happened in the ancient Near East culture. You'll recall from last week's study, who, who was it that was allowed to divorce their wives? Who was it? The men. First no one we could talk. It was the men. Right? Only men were allowed to to uh, divorce. Where was the equality in that hypocritical practice? Even the concession that Moses permitted in Deuteronomy 24 required getting a certificate of divorce. Why? So that women could be protected, right? So Jesus begins here by challenging their hypocrisy and their low and unequal view of women that was so prevalent in the culture. And here's what James Edwards had to say. Jesus' teaching on marriage is predicated on a different estimate of women. Quoting Genesis 1.27 and verse 6, he acknowledges that God created humanity uniquely as male and female. By expressingly mentioning the two sexes, 
Jesus declares that maleness and femaleness are rooted in the creative will of God and are foundational for marriage. As a sovereign creation, women, woman is not man's subject, but his So this was spiritual zinger number one for them. Okay? Jesus highlights this. Another issue that Jesus addressed by challenging them with God's view of marriage between one man and one woman was the, the practice and the problem of polygamy. That is, men marrying multiple wives. Polygamy was practiced historically among the Jews. And listen to what the Jewish historian Josephus writes, quote, for it is an ancestral custom of ours to have several wives at the same time, end quote. Rabbinic legislation also regulated inheritance customs and other aspects of polygamy. Though we see evidence of this throughout the Old Testament, it's also wise to make a further distinction between Jewish men who took surrogate wives because their wives were barren, right? And there was a decision that was reached between husband and wife as it related to having a surrogate so that the line could be extended. We see an example of this with Abraham right, and, and Hagar. And there was disobedience still there because they didn't trust God right, to, to provide. So I'm not justifying that sin, but I'm helping you see the radically different perspective and that being pursued because the lineage was so important in contrast to someone like Solomon, who according to 1 Kings 11.3, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And it's not coincidental that the end of that verse finishes by saying, and his wives turned away his heart. The same criticism of polygamy in Deuteronomy 17.17 17 is clear when it's talking to potential kings of Israel. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Why would they be given this instruction? Because God's word presents monogamy, not polygamy as the divine ideal. The Creator made marriage as a union between one man and one woman exclusively. And apparently, polygamy, much like divorce, was, was tolerated due to the hardness of people's hearts. So God sets the boundaries for marriage in Genesis. And Jesus again affirms the participants in marriage in Mark 10:6. One man, one woman. One marriage. And we see in our millennial culture that it's resisting the boundaries even more so today, don't we? We see it increasingly more resistant. They resist God by advocating same-sex marriage. Be a man and a man and a woman and a woman. They resist God by embracing polygamy. It can be multiple wives. Very common, those familiar with just even uh, the Mormon church and their acceptance of the practice of polygamy. Open marriages, I mentioned that before. Or no marriage at all. Marriages become so despised that, you know what? My parents were divorced, your parents were divorced. Let's just get together, live together, and 
get that whole thing. It is the consequence of their unbelief and a constant reminder for us that they need Christ and they need the gospel, right? Oh, dear friend, they need us to help them see what God's word so clearly teaches about marriage. It can, if we are willing, turn into a platform for the gospel. Are you and I willing to reach them? Are you willing to reach them? And if not you, then who? If not me, then who? Who? Right? There is nobody else. Listen, and you have to dial in and you have to grasp this reality. There is nobody else to point them to the truth. You are it, my friend. You in your workplace. You in your college. You in your high school. And it's amazing. Having lunch just with a brother the other day and saw two girls. I, I didn't even know if they were in high school yet. Walking down, the, walking down, holding hands. Who will let them know the truth about what God's Word says about relationships and about marriage and how to honor Him and how to magnify Him? If not us, then answer that question. It is us. It is us. And we have to own it. And it's hard. It's difficult. For long conversations... They're emotional conversations. They're taxing conversations. We have to be willing. Next, Jesus shares God's pattern in marriage. Look at verse 7. Jesus continues, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Jesus quotes a portion of Genesis 2.24. The pattern set by God is that a man and a woman man and a woman will leave their respective families to become their own family. Regardless of whether they have children or not, they become a a new family unit. They're now an independent family. This means that they are independent of the governing authority that previously existed from their respective parents on both sides. Genesis 2.24 includes the phrase, and be joined to his wife after it says he shall leave his father and mother. He's going to leave and be joined to his wife. This is commonly understood as the leaving and cleaving aspect of marriage. And here Jesus declares that in marriage, a husband's obligation to his wife surpasses his obligation to his parents. James Edwards writes, In the Torah, the commandment to honor one's parents is one of the Ten Commandments of God and second only to the commandment to honor God. But the effect of verse 7 is to declare that a husband's allegiance to his wife and the union of marriage surpasses his allegiance to father and mother, making marriage second only to obedience to God in sacredness. End quote. Since the Pharisees and the Jewish culture of the day had such a, a compromised view, really this disposable view of marriage, Jesus features this truth by challenging them. No Pharisee would dream of intentionally dishonoring their parents or disposing of them. That would have just been like a, a no-no. 
So Jesus just featured and reminded them that in God's view of marriage, allegiance to the spousal relationship is above your allegiance even to parents. Again, another spiritual zinger for them. Under God's divine design, a man was to leave the home of parents and he was to cleave to his wife. Allegiance to parents surrenders to the allegiance to your spouse. Might even challenge some of us in the room today. Right? Because some of us have very strong relationships and past with our parents. Some of them um, continue to try to have an impact on our lives. So they try to love us, right? They try to support us in our marriage, even provide things, right? Sometimes it's not said, but there's even this understanding that as the down payment of the house comes or the help with purchasing the car or doing this and supporting and paying for your master's at college comes with some conditions with it that still provide some leverage for me to have some governing authority. That's what God says. Can't be that way. It can't be that way. And I would say man of the house, spiritual leader of the house, head of the house, you have to guard and protect your wives from that. You have to guard and protect your own heart as the leader in the home from that. Marriage is designed to be in an indivisible bond which sets us up for the third aspect of marriage that Jesus Features. He has featured God's participants in marriage. He's featured God's pattern in marriage. And now God's purpose in marriage. Look at verse 8. Jesus continues by stating, And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. The Lord features the intimacy of the covenant of marriage. It is a covenant of love. It is a covenant of commitment that reflects not only the physical union, marriage is consummated, and they become one flesh, but it also mirrors forth the covenantal bond and commitment of God to his people. Now, we have a distinct advantage that the Pharisees don't have at this point, right? We have the New Testament. We have a full and complete understanding of the new covenant and how the gospel mirrors forth, right? understand that picture that is 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 proposed for us Ephesians 5 that's so clearly spelled out that marriage is just like Christ and the church we didn't have that complete understanding but it is important to see that marriage was also used to describe the relationship between God and Israel in the Old Testament in a number of passages And for the sake of time, we won't have time to look at all of them, but we want to at least look at a couple. And so I picked what I thought would be the best ones for us to look at. Ezekiel chapter 16, if you want to turn there. Right next to Daniel, you'll find Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm resisting a temptation to to read starting at the beginning of the chapter, and we'll start in verse 8. And I want you to, to pay attention just to the, the, the description 
the, the very intimate description of, of what God is describing here that reflects the marital union. Then I passed by you, verse 8, and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. And I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace round your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Verse 14, Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. In this passage, is it not? It's just filled with, with beautiful, wonderful wedding imagery. It's incredible. And, and the gifts that are being described here are, are ones that would be given to a queen, right? A, a, married to a king. And so that is the, 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 the picture of even uh, of God, the king, in the Old Testament. Married to Israel. And we can be certain that this would captivate Israel's hearts because of the covenantal love that the Lord expresses. It is ironically, it's even been written in the, the context of their unfaithfulness. If you look up at the heading of this chapter, that the Lord expressed his covenantal love to them. Listen to the second passage recorded by Isaiah in chapter 54. You can turn there. It's just a couple of verses. A little quicker to read. Isaiah chapter 54, 6 through 8. And this one even hit home a little bit more for me because it's already it's talking about the marriage. And you'll, you'll see how the Lord um, just even interacted with Israel as if they were a wife. Listen to this, starting in uh, 54, 6. God says, The Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Wow. And so I want you to just imagine this for a moment. The Pharisees who were were just dismissing their wives for any reason whatsoever as it related to the covenant that they made, a complete and utter disregard. Their wives were disposable. They were disposable. 
Worse yet, they were encouraging others to do the same. They were encouraging Israel to practice the same. And they see the gracious covenantal aspect of God's grace and love on display towards them. How could they treat the covenant of their marriage with their wives with such disregard and contempt? It's even more amplified for us in the New Testament as we see how marriage is purposed to mirror forth the unity of Christ and the church putting the gospel on display. Again, there's a number of passages that we could look at. A number of them. Revelation 19, 7-9 describes the future marriage supper of the Lamb as Christ will feast with His prepared bride, the church. Jesus regularly referred to Himself as the bridegroom. In Matthew 9.15, Mark 2.19-20, Luke 5.34-35, and 35, and others. Even the parable of the ten virgins used vivid wedding imagery in Matthew 25. But the passage that features the bride and the bridegroom the most is one that's very familiar to us. I want to invite you to turn there, Ephesians 5, so that your hearts can be captured by it again. Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 23, and if you have the New American Standard, even the heading of the chapter says marriage like Christ and the church. It displays beautifully how marriage reflects Christ's relationship with the church. And so I do want to honor the Lord. I want to read it together before we just consider its impact. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Every single time that I read this passage, it takes my mind back to a, a wedding ceremony that Victoria and I were invited to in North Carolina. And I wasn't doing the ceremony, so it's always nice just to attend. I love weddings. It's exciting for, for the couple. It's exciting for the families. And we, we got there, and we were sitting on the bride's side, and um, we were sitting towards the back. And as the ceremony started, the scripture reading was actually Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And there was this older couple that was sitting in front of us. And I remember the guy, he was, he was pretty, he was, he was taller than I was. And um, so he's just easy to spot and his head was kind of above the crowd. And as this, this passage was being read, and verses 22 and through 24 had just been read that features, you know, wives be subject to your husbands for the husband is the head of wife. 
wives be subject to your husbands and everything. The husband was looking over at his wife going like this, nodding his head. I'm not kidding you. He was nodding his head like, you got that woman? You, you hear what, do you hear what he just said? You, you, you got that woman? He's not nodding like, better, better hear it up. Better hear it. Be dialed in. And it was amazing. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. I'll never forget it. To watch his demeanor just absolutely shrink as verses 25 and following were read. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wash her in the word. Present her. Right? All this blameless, above reproach, just beautiful pictures right? that we see. And this man, he just shrunk. And I could tell immediately that there was no oneness or unity in their marriage because both people appeared preoccupied with, with what the other person was doing and not with what Christ had done. you get that? They were preoccupied with what their spouse was doing instead of what Christ has done. sure glad that we don't do that yeah being facetious there because we do and as i looked at that couple as i considered them this is what happens if you take christ and the gospel out of the equation a christless marriage is a crisis marriage you've heard me say that many times before and if you remove Christ and the gospel from marriage, what are you left with? I, I can tell you, and this is a, a cool exercise. You can do it a little bit later. I want you to go back to Ephesians 5, and 33, and I want you to read it, and I want you to take out every single reference to Christ that points to him. You know what you have? You have wives be subject to your husband commands, and you have husbands love your wives with absolutely no understanding and no description about what that's supposed to look like. And so what do we have? What, is it, what does the world do? They embrace compromised views of marriage that look to some other standard or that are committed to some level of spousal expectation inherited from their parents or from the world. So what do we see in our world and what has existed throughout the course of human history? Broken marriage after broken marriage. Divorce after divorce after divorce. What is the answer to the problem? What is the only answer to the problem? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Only when hearts have been changed by the gospel... Can we experience the true oneness and unity with God, right? Only the heart that has been born again can look to and follow Christ as the great example of submission and love. Only then can we experience true unity and oneness in life as well as in marriage by divine design. 
And this is exactly why the Apostle Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to write verse 31, the same verse that Jesus quoted in Mark 10, 7, and 8, which features God's ultimate purpose in marriage. It was a mystery in the past that is now revealed in the New Testament age that can be understood. So what bearing should God's purpose for marriage have on our lives? If you're married, both you and your spouse profess Christ, then you want to put the gospel on display. What does that look like practically? No husband or wife can fulfill their role perfectly. I fall short of loving my wife sacrificially just as Christ loves the church and she falls short of perfect submission. This is true of all marriages. But think about this. The times that we do function in the spirit of the Lord and we do love our spouse as Christ loved the church and our, our, our wives do submit as the church willfully submits. Just the beauty of that, the rich blessing and the treasure and the joy of that. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. It's beautiful, beautiful expression. But do we always do that perfectly? I know I don't. I think I'm not alone. I think every man in the room would confess we don't. Every wife. This is true for all marriages, yet the gospel of grace leads us to extend love and forgiveness to each other just as it's been extended to us. And this is how unity and oneness is celebrated. It's how it's expressed in biblical marriage. How many of us have heard other expressions or descriptions of marital unity or oneness? Such as married couples reflect unity in their common goals, their direction, their wills, their emotions, their minds and spirits, and that having babies is the perfect emblem of their oneness. Though I appreciate the heart behind those sentiments and the byproducts of unity, I do believe there is wisdom in protecting the focus of the unity in a way that God describes it so that we don't end up with an unbiblical or compromised view of marriage. Those things are byproducts of unity. But the prime product and the primary purpose of marital oneness is always to mirror forth Christ's love and submission demonstrated through the gospel as husbands and wives. That's it. That is the primary MO right there. I was trying to think of an illustration. I was sharing this with a brother actually after last Sunday's message because I was excited about marriage. I was excited about this, this passage and the opportunity to preach this today. And, and it's, it, it, I would picture it like this. It says, is each couple, you, you hold a, a gospel thread in your hands. And you leave and you cleave and then you weave your life together. And what does that weaving look like? It is the, the thread of the gospel being woven into the fabric of your marriage. That's it. Sharing your lives together. And yeah, you 
there's elements of companionship and um, different dynamics of marriage that we feature and, and opportunity to be co-laborers and to have children and all those things. Again, byproducts of marriage. The ultimate expression of unity is to have that gospel thread. You exalting and putting Christ on display through your obedience as you, as you weave and work in harmony in your marriage. And then when you don't, when you fall short, when you sin against your spouse, that you would come in repentance and ask for forgiveness of your sin. This is so significant because as your marriage will grow stronger and stronger as that fabric is being woven stronger and stronger so that when hard times come, and they will, when rocky times come, and they will, what happens? You have the fabric. You have the structure. You have the power of the gospel to catch you when you fall. You will be held together in His strength by the unlimited life-transforming power of the gospel in your marriage. There. Husbands, how are you doing at sowing love and forgiveness in your marriage? Does the unbelieving world smell the fragrance of Christ in your marriage? Does your marriage just stink like a worldly marriage? And do you need to be honest, make an assessment of your focus on Christ and how you've been living out the gospel? And oh, if you just even knew the weight that is on my own heart right now my own need. Wives, how are you doing at sowing submission and forgiveness into your marital relationship? Does the unbelieving world smell the aroma of Christ in your marriage? Single people, how are you sowing the gospel of grace into the fabric of your personal relationships that will prepare you for marriage someday? Are you a good forgiver? Are you a good forgiver? I submit to you that if you are not a good forgiver, you are not ready for marriage. I will say it that plainly. Because it requires, it's sanctifying, and it requires that you be a good forgiver. And if you're growing in the grace of the gospel and extending forgiveness to others, this is preparing you in great measure. This is how marriage is protected by God's design. If true repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation is practiced regularly and each spouse is embracing their roles, by the grace of God, there's nothing that should ever threaten the unity of your marriage or anything that cannot be overcome by the grace of God in your marriage. And I say that with 100% conviction. There is nothing, there is nothing you can overcome anything in your marriage. Anything. By the grace of God. Your marriage will reflect God's ideal purpose. 
You will be able to honor the covenant of your commitment to the Lord and to your spouse and to embrace the words that Jesus shares in verse 9, which serves as an appropriate conclusion to this message when he said, What therefore God has joined together, but no man separate. Only God has the authority to define marriage as he intended it. God's view determines the participants in marriage. God's view determines the pattern in marriage. God's view determines the purpose in marriage. And yes, God's view is able to determine all of these matters because he is the sovereign authority. At the beginning of the message, I shared a lengthy quote by Pastor David Platt. And it concluded with the following questions that I want to just share with you again. What has the Creator God said about marriage? Have we turned aside from what He has said? Does Christ's death on the cross have anything to do with how we define marriage? What does it mean for followers of Christ to live in a culture that often defines marriage differently than the Bible does? If we're willing to ask these questions honestly, we need to be ready for surprising answers. More important, we need to be prepared to counter the culture around us in significant ways. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we bow our heads thanking you just for the clarity of your word. Thank you for allowing us to get our arms around the, the, the words of your Son. He is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us and every aspect of, of truth is reflected. The, the veracity of, of his nature is, is so profound as he spoke these truths with clarity and precision. And we're surrounded by a culture that has a very compromised view of marriage. And that is why so many are broken. So many are ending in divorce. Lord, it is because they have no commitment to you. The truth of the gospel must be woven into the fabric of their own hearts and their hearts must be born again to be able to live out and fulfill their marital roles in a way that you design. The only way for them to know and to to see these truths, Father, are if we live them out. That they might be willing to ask us when they're going through difficult times. How does your marriage look that way? How are you so able to just respond to your husband in such a way? My friend, how do you Love your wife in such an incredibly gracious way. See you making these sacrifices. Father, help us. Help us to put these type of marriages on display for the world to see. Help us to be faithful in that. Help us to have a high and lofty view of marriage because in the end, it presents a high and lofty view of Christ and the church. And our hearts love both. They truly do. So we celebrate you.
Thank you that we have Christ. He is our firm foundation. He is the, the very foundation of the church. He is the very foundation of life. Very foundation of marriage. Help us to keep Him in focus and help us to cling to Him so that we can exalt Christ and the Gospel in every single way. We ask that You would help us do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.